Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Good morning, everyone. David Gurr and Tom Keen, Bloomberg Surveillance. Our studios in New York, Mr. Gurr off. Francine Lacroix in our studios in London. Francine, Prime Minister May, is she in Japan on her she way? Is. What's that? So I think she just landed in Japan. We just spoke to Alex Morales on TV. He's traveling with the prime minister. Tom, this is actually quite significant. because She's gone to Japan in the hope of some kind of commitment uh, for a free trade deal. Yeah, of course, yeah. they can't actually sign anything. But if she comes back a failure, that's not going to look very great. I mean, this is a massive Brexit theme. I, I, am I going to suggest Mr. Johnson, Boris Johnson's theme, that we are going to become a trading empire again? And I, I agree. It starts with Japan, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't, I don't know about the trading empire. Certainly uh, in his mind and maybe a couple of people that voted for Brexit, that's certainly what they aim for, uh, yeah. Todd. But if you think about it, look, it's going to be quite difficult to, to pull this thing off. Right. I think negotiations with the EU lasted for almost a decade before they could okay. actually you know, be in these final stages of this free trade agreement. Okay, here's what we're going to do. One question with Jens Nordvig on the business at hand, the dollar, and then we want to talk to him about global uh, Wall Street. Dollar dynamics, the massive missed call of the summer, strong dollar, euro parity, all of it was reversed. Let's start with the why. Why did everybody get the strong dollar call wrong? Well, I think that the hope about what hope, the administration yeah. could do was uh, just to elevate. So it's linked to Trump, the election, the enthusiasm. I think there's a part of that. And I think there was there's too much concern about uh, the European political risk, right? So it 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 was something that focused everybody's minds uh, around the French election, and they were worried about the downside risk. But in fact, now we have upset risk in terms of politics in Europe. Maybe uh, Macron and Merkel okay. can actually get a deal together uh, in coming months. So that would be a positive thing. Francine has led our coverage on MIFID, MIFID. How, how do you pronounce it, Jay? MIFID, MIFID, MIFID. I'm, there was I, MIFID 1 before. MIFID 1 and others. MIFID 2. Uh, you've lived it. You've gone from major firms, Goldman Sachs and Nomura, to where you've got a shingle out. You're hugely successful talking to elites. There can only be so many Jens Nordvigs. What are the mere mortals of research and intellectual content? What do the mere mortals do in the city and in New York? Well, so uh, I can talk a little bit about what, what we are trying to do, right? Because you're right that if it's based on a single individual, then you can't scale a business. That's just going to stop there, right? So you need to have some kind of infrastructure that gives you an edge, right? So what we're trying to do is we're trying to really build unique data, unique models that we can show to people, and that gives them an edge. So that's how we're trying to, to scale the business. But I think you're right. Uh, if you are a pretty good analysis that sits in a, in a, in a bank or an independent research institution, pretty good is not going to cut it. You have to be among the very best to get paid specifically for your research, and that's the competition that everybody's going to be in now. Yeah. Jens, I can't really make sense of it. So I understand these are, you know, very important rules to make everything more transparent. But then we speak to Danske Bank, and they say they're trying to figure out whether research analysts need to charge for routine phone calls. Why do we not know yet? We're, what, August 28th or 29th? This, you know, goes in place January 3rd. 
I think uh, one major problem is that um, the banks are setting prices now for their research, and you can see that they're coming down, down, down. The Deutsche Bank with that announcement the other day, yeah. Exactly, and they we don't know where the floor is. We don't know where regulators going to say, okay, that price is just actually doesn't match any any of the cost you're having it's just a fake price so the right. regulators have to come out and give some guidance as to what price, uh, pricing they would, would accept and we just don't have that yet okay do we have any idea of where that accepted price is because if you if you lowball it right if you say well i'm hardly going to pay anything at all uh, not only do you risk the regulator saying that's not good enough but they could also do an investigation on it yeah no, so I, I think that's uh, the, the core of the problem. That guidance has not been given, and we're, we're only a couple of months away from when this is supposed to come to, into effect, and it's kind of paralyzing everybody because we just don't yeah. know how research is going to be priced. Well, it's away from your world of foreign exchange, but in equities, Collins, Rockwell Collins, the merger with UTX, Collins on the Bloomberg has 2021 analysts following it. From where you sit, are those days over? Well, I, th I think you can already see it in the equity space that there are more and more players withdrawing from, like, traditional equity research, and therefore we have less analysts covering certain stocks, and we have also less stocks overall being covered. So, in a way, this, this uh, regulation is going to mean that there's less information available to trade on. Okay, does that mean, for example, that if you're a great, you know, if you bring your research in-house, so you stop paying for it from others, that actually will yeah, give you the real advantage? How much is the financial landscape really going to change? Because you'll see the, the, the people that are really good out of their own research actually making the trades. Yeah, I think, I think you're seeing that, that there's more and more buy-side firms that says, okay, it's going to be too expensive, we have to do it internally. So there's certainly players that are doing it that way. They're doing it very quickly here. I know you've got to go to a client call right now, but Jens Norvig, this is critical. Have you seen any evidence that anyone's going to quote unquote take foreign exchange coverage internally? So the foreign exchange market is special in that it's not about thousands of companies. It's like a couple of key crosses. Yeah. Uh, so I think in, in general, the big currency traders in the world, they will have a mix of internal yeah. research and they also pay for the best they can get outside. Yeah. They're still going to send people to the New York Rangers, Montreal Canadiens game. All that racket's going to still continue. <laughs> Jens Nordvig, thank you so much. Uh, with uh, Exante Data here, an important call. For those of you interested in the energy assets of a beleaguered Gulf of Mexico, this is without question the interview of the day. Jacques Rousseau is with Clearview Energy Partners, but the barely describes decades of work on the pipelines, the refineries of our American energy infrastructure. Jacques, an open question first. Are our assets at risk? Do we 30 days from now, 60 days from now, 90 days from now, move on with Harvey as a memory? Uh, that's a difficult question to answer. I think one way to think about it is during Katrina, it took about three months for these refineries to get back up to a full production level. So that is one marker to think about, but you just never know. You mentioned uh, earlier this morning when we spoke on television about the unique uh, place of electricity to oil and to gas in the region. Explain that. Give us a Lehigh University exclama exclamation of explanation. I'll get it out. Explanation of how electricity folds into hydrocarbons. 
Sure. I, I think what you want to think about is refineries, uh, pumping stations for pipelines, uh, chemical plants. Uh, there's a lot of electricity that powers the plants, and if that has gotten flooded and knocked out, you know, there can be a lengthy recovery time to repair that. All right. I'm looking at some of the refineries, and there's um, a great function on the Bloomberg Terminal for those that, that have one. Jacques, talk to me about what is more concerning. Is it refineries shutting or the pipeline being blocked off? Well, right now we're looking on the refinery side. If you think about the United States, about 50% of refining capacity is in the Gulf Coast, 20% of that in Louisiana, 30% of that in Texas. From what we've seen now, there's been reported 18% or so of U.S. refining capacity is either down or working at uh, restricted rates. So that is kind of the key thing to focus on right now, because if those refineries stay down for an extended period of time, that is what the market is thinking with gasoline going up. How much does a hurricane actually impact the demand? So not the supply side, but the demand side of things? That's a great question. And I think you can see that in oil price, because what we're seeing for uh, WTI is that the United States is down roughly 800,000 barrels per day of oil supply due to the hurricane, but oil demand due to the hurricane is a bigger number because that's uh, the refining side of the equation, is that we're seeing over 3 million barrels per day of refining capacity down, and so that's cutting um, the gasoline, which is the way the government calculates it in terms of uh, product supplied is what they call demand. I mean, flooding is not the only – I mean, flooding seems to, to be, uh, Jacques, the primary problem for refineries, right? But it's not the only one. Sure. I mean, you have a lot of uh, – do you have ability to get oil? Do you have ability to access pipelines? You know, there's, there's definitely a lot of infrastructure issues that need to be worked out. And I think we will see yeah. this over the next few days. We will get uh, reports from the different companies on the status. Um, as I recall from the Katrina days, you know, there was a lot of information flow once companies could actually get back into the assets. Brian Mound, Big Hill, West Hackberry – in Bayou Choctaw, that's where our strategic oil reserve is. Is our strategic oil reserve up to its eyeballs in water this morning? Uh, that's a hard one to say. I mean, I think what you want to think about is, do we need that oil? And, um, you know, that's not what this this uh, hurricane has caused, a shortage of oil. So we're, we're not in a situation where we need oil. But it may get to the point where companies need to borrow some oil. And during Katrina, companies actually borrowed 10 million oh, barrels of oil and then actually returned it in the subsequent months. Many more questions. Let's continue with this. Jacques Rousseau with us with Clearview uh, Energy Partners. We are being smarter on hydrocarbons today. Francine Lacroix in London. I'm Tom Keenan in New York. Jack Rousseau with us with Clearview Energy Partners as we continue to look at what has become a tropical storm. What is the, the infrastructure need of our pipelines and refineries? Is it as ugly as our many bridges worn out across this nation? Oh, I wouldn't say that. Um, you know, these assets are, are taken care of very well. Obviously, if they weren't, there would be a lot more yeah. significant problems to that. So um, it's just a matter of dealing with um, the flooding and, and figuring out what actually happened. I mean, are, are they new facilities? We think of all the stereotypes of refineries built after World War II that are being pieced together with duct tape. Is That's not the case down there, is it? 
Well, there's not too many new refineries. Uh, Marathon Petroleum had built one uh, near New Orleans a, a few years back, uh, but most of them have been around for a while. Uh, obviously, there's there's uh, maintenance that occurs uh, on routine basis. What is uh, the the, uh, the things sir, that we understand or misunderstand about shale production f from the U.S.? If you look at you know the, the uh, I guess the break even price, I'm hearing everything from thirty to sixty. Yeah, obviously, we've seen a big move up in uh, shale production um, with the move up in oil price uh, since the uh, the OPEC announcement to start cutting production, and, and that is becoming a marginal supply um, out there. I mean, I think what you need to look at going forward in the back half of the year is that the world uses a lot more oil in the second half of the year, just seasonally. And this is OPEC's big chance to reduce inventories. Supply and demand is very close. So we have a lot of wild cards out there that could go either way. And, and we've got a new one with the hurricane because, as we were mentioning before, this is going to uh, clip demand in the U.S. some. If you, if you look at Libya's oil production, right, it, it's dropped, um, I think, by around 361,000 barrels a day. That's 35% of output last month. How much does that help OPEC and its struggle to reduce this global glut? That's a great question. And, and Libya is one of the wild cards. You've got Libya, you've got Nigeria, you've got Venezuela. Iraq has not come close to, to meeting their production cuts. So this is what OPEC needs, is they need a few of these countries to, for their oil to move down um, to offset any sort of demand loss that we might get yeah. because of the hurricane. Jacques, one final question. Is America energy independent? Oh, on the way, for sure, but uh, there's still a significant amount of uh, imported oil that uh, we need every day to, um, to keep the gasoline and keep our cars going. Very good, Jacques. On short notes, thank you so much, Jacques Rousseau with Clearview Energy Partners with great perspective, particularly of a troubled uh, Gulf of Mexico coastline. And again, all of our reports, uh, folks, the seriousness of the hurricane and now tropical storm. Uh, Harvey, uh, the rescue efforts continue across much of Houston and to the eastern climbs. For our global audience, this is Houston on the Gulf of Mexico over to the Louisiana border uh, on the way to New Orleans, not to get to New Orleans. That would be a, a misstatement. So here's the theme, folks, with all the new slow that's going on. I, you know, the hunch like two weeks ago was, you know, we're going to reset September. It's supposed to be Labor Day, you know, five days after Labor Day. No, it's starting now with the amazing news flow that we've got, not only out of Washington and London with the prime minister traveling to Japan, but now with Hurricane Harvey and all that. We need to reset. And one way to do that in a decade financial crisis is without exaggeration, I will say one of the five most important books of the last decade on what we do with surveillance, and that is The Age of Oversupply. There was at some point 47 books on my desk, and the world changed when Martin Wolf of the FT said, shut up and read Dan Elpert's Age of Oversupply. Dan, you've retired off of the royalties of Age of Oversupply, right? I just wish. I don't think I've earned back the advance. When's the movie out? <laughs> 
is this a, is a, is a movie come out here like Memorial Day 2020 Kit Harrington yeah. what what is what where'd you get the title what is the age of oversupply it's very, it's very funny the um, the original title was supposed to be uh, managed capitalism it was basically looking back and saying you know we pursued free market strategies for 30 years and there needs to be um, a, a new look taken at capitalism yeah. everybody basically said to me that's an, a really insidious title don't do that uh, the first uh, chapter was called The Age of Oversupply, and the publisher came back to me and said, it's a great title for the book. So that's what we did. Right. So, so what is being oversupplied? Oh, well, the, the whole concept is that, that uh, the emergence of the post-socialist states uh, after uh, 1989, beginning of 1989 and thereafter, uh, really created this massive oversupply of labor relative to aggregate demand globally. Uh, and that, in turn, created a huge, huge oversupply of production and therefore capital. Uh, excess capital uh, defined as, I guess, by Bernanke as the savings glut, and then we came to understand it a little bit better, uh, which yeah. you know basically flowed back into markets seeking risk-free returns and in bonds and, and mortgage-backed securities and such. There any way? There's any number of ways <clears throat> to go with this. I'm going to go to the brain power of Chapter Eight, hmm. which is bad values. Why sticky wages and prices? block a real recovery. Now, that can go either way, depression, advance, etc. But when you wrote The Age of Oversupply, did you predict or think about the lack of wage growth we see right now? Well, wage growth, you know, really, this is the big debate because we've had such an enormous expansion in service jobs uh, relative to goods producing jobs. Uh, if you actually net it out going back to the previous height, 2007, we've only added net-net about a million-something in, uh, in goods-producing jobs or high-wage, high-hours jobs, I should say. And the rest of it, four-plus million, has been low-wage, low-hour jobs, really crappy jobs. Um, and, and so all of that is a, is a manifestation of the lack of demand for uh, labor in all but the most high-tech sectors of the economy. And and it's it's you know, all of this is a global phenomenon. You have to go back to uh, what uh, what happened you know in the age of oversupply, which is just this enormous amount of productive labor that is willing to work relatively inexpensively. And you know people have for years said, oh, the Chinese thing is over. It's it's now you know they're going to have to find cheaper labor somewhere else. But China isn't over. Neither is India. And the reason for that is their urbanized population is still a fraction. Of, of its total population. I mean, China is still only about half urbanized, and now the, the rest of the people are not really part of the global economy. Um, and India is, is, is only about uh, 65% urbanized. I'm sorry, 35% urbanized. So, you know, you, you have this mess of bench strength that, that can continue to add labor to the problem, which tamps down the value of labor in the developed world. But Dan, how do you fix it? Do you bring jobs, American jobs abroad, or do you, do you bring foreigners to America? I'm looking at a great Bloomberg chart, right? And it's uh, what you were talking about. So the difference between unfilled job openings and workers hired, there were 6.1 million unfilled job openings on June 30th. I think that's you know the most since data was compiled in 2000. And it's a massive myth. Uh, the myth is that there are all these job openings, but they're job openings at a wage. 
Uh, and that is the key to understanding yeah. the jolt statistics. Uh, you don't have this massive unfilled inventory when you have a huge underemployed labor base that's going into jobs at low wages and low hours just to make ends meet. Um, these these jolt statistics are, very, are grossly misleading, and, and unfortunately, uh, uh, the Fed relies a lot on them. I will editorialize here, Francine. Anecdotally, Mr. Elpert is 100% correct. It is absolutely unreal the disinterest people have in those skilled jobs at the wage offered. I, you know, you see it anecdotally every single day, Francine. Yeah, but what I'm asking, Dan, is how do you fix this, right? So you're you're saying this is not true, but again, you still have the the, the uh, unemployment or the um, labor forces conundrum. Let's call it that. So this is the big issue going into the fall, right? We're going to be talking about tax reform in the United States. The issue of whether or not the economic nationalist agenda is going to prevail or continue to prevail under—I don't know if it ever prevailed—but I mean, yeah. going to prevail under under uh, under the Trump administration. These big issues are all oriented at what he had promised in his campaign and what the American electorate apparently seems to 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 want, or at least a good chunk of them, which is uh, better jobs and. The, the notion that uh, trickle-down tax reform is going to help, I think, is highly specious. Uh, and, of course, when it comes to uh, tariffs and other protectionist measures, I favor some measures because we can't go on like this forever in the United States. Uh, and, and there are some very good things that we could be doing. But at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself the, the, the quintessential question, which is, can the private sector in the United States actually shift people back into more gainful, higher-paying jobs when there is this massive exogenous labor force offshore. Um, and at my conclusion, the conclusion that I reached in the book, and my conclusion today, especially looking at the last 10 years, is it's very difficult. You have uh, terrific PowerPoints. I'll steal any number of these charts, folks, and of course take credit for them <laughs> myself. But it does go back then to what can government policymakers do? Now, you mentioned the Fed earlier, and they're struggling. Jens Nordvig talking about one, uh, one uh, 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 Fed increase out to the end of next year. What does Dan Elpert demand from the legislative branch or from the executive office now? I mean, is it just as simple as targeted investment tax credits? No, it's not. And, and uh, you know, this, this gets down to the big debate. We have a huge number of people who found it politically ex expedient to use uh, uh, the national debt as a whipping boy. Uh, we have, and you look at the bond today, I don't, I'm not looking at it on the screen in front of me, but my recollection is the 10 years back down to 213 or something yeah, like that. Yeah, 213 off of 209. Yeah. And, and you can tell that the, the relentless uh, uh, lack of inflationary pressures yeah. and the, the enormous uh, demand for, for bonds makes the government extremely cheap yeah. to finance. And so the government really needs to step in. And, and actually go back, rebuild our infrastructure, spend mm. trillions of dollars, and put people back to work in gainful jobs. And we go back to infrastructure and the mystery of why that can't occur. Dan Elbert, is there a beach read on this book? Are you doing, you know, with the movie rights sold, are you doing an afterward where you know, for, one, your, one of the for things, your holiday purchase? One of the things is, is I, I've done a lot of work uh, recently with the Coalition for American Prosperity, which is uh, a trade group that, that is yeah. very focused on this issue. I, I've determined that, you know, given the fact that people communicate today, including the president of the United States, through tweet, tweet storms, uh, and uh, people are far more graphically oriented, that, I, that yeah. I've really devoted myself to writing more decks than reports. Very good. Dan Elpert uh, uh, with us. The Age of Oversupply, it's not dated. I re it, it is a book where every chapter 
will force you to think differently. That is, I can't say enough about it. Daniel Elpert with us in the studios off the age of oversupply. And we will continue on where is the wage growth in celebration of, you know, you think about the five books of the crisis. The age of oversupply is clearly one. Daniel Elpert with us. Maybe there's like Reinhardt and Rogoff and uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin's wonderful Too Big to Fail. And there's other books, this, that, and the other. But The Age of Oversupply really deserves a second read if you've read it before. And if you haven't read it, you're missing something and some of the great changes. Dan Elpert, the most frightening chart for me and Francine and mostly for our children. Mm. Francine, our grandchildren. I'm sorry. Say that. <laughs> no, children. Excuse me. Is your debt <laughs> expansion. It's three lines. We know corporate debt's up, blah, blah, blah. Government debt's up. But I think a lot of people don't realize where private debt is. It's becoming what Kotlikoff of Boston University talks about, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, the, 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 at, at this point, we're back into a debt cycle. Uh, the real question is, to what extent is debt being taken on because of uh, optimism on the part of consumers? Uh, and to what extent is it just merely filling the gap between what they desire and what they earn? And, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the histories of the crisis or the bubble that preceded it is that so much of uh, GDP was being supported uh, by people pulling uh, debt out of in their homes for the most part, yeah. but credit cards uh, also counted. Uh, and uh, and this, this vicious cycle of continuing to, um, uh, continuing to, to borrow in order yeah. to consume, uh, that, is, that is reemerging. And we look back, Francine, on, you know, Age of Oversupply, a major shout-out to the work of Jan Hatzius, who was younger then, and his wonderful mm-hmm. work on mortgage equity withdrawal at Goldman Sachs. That was path-breaking well over 10 years ago. Dan, can, can, yes, and that, and that was amazing work. Dan, can, can you, I don't know if um, how much you look at debt in the UK, but I imagine there's a trend in Western worlds that actually debt is becoming more and more sustain, unsustainable for the younger generation. How will it affect their consumer behavior? Well, you know, the, the, it's very, very clear that we brought forward demand for housing, and housing is certainly one of the largest consumables in, the, in, in any developed country. So we brought, brought forward enormous demand, and we have left um, the young people with, with two things. One is uh, uh, less expectations of intergenerational wealth transfer because uh, so much of, of wealth was eradicated during this crisis. Some has come back, but peop- you know the, the previous generation is going to live a long time. So they're not going to get the intergenerational wealth transfer except at the very, very top of the pyramid um, you know, that, that I think people were counting on. There's been some really great work done on that over the last few years. Uh, and then secondly, of course, they are burdened by uh, education expenses in the form of continued student loans. I mean, one of the great horrors of the post-crisis period was watching the amount of student debt in the United States uh, go up from uh, four or $500 to $1.2 trillion uh, in, in almost the blink of an eye. Um, that does not affect uh, the UK as much as it does the US. Uh, but it is it is certainly a, a factor in, in the Western world. We we have effectively uh, eradicated uh, and, and put and put very highly educated people into underproducing jobs as well. Uh, you know, a huge amount of uh, of demand. Well, will there be less appetite to own homes? 
and rent more? Well, it's very interesting because we're seeing in the United States over the last six months sort of a peaking of the rental market. And a lot of that is due to overbuilding. And a lot of it is due to uh, an enormous amount of for sale housing that has been built specifically in the condominium sector. These deals are starting to crash. Rents have declined in the high end uh, over the la- in, in, in uh, cities like New York over the last several months and, and look like they are accelerating in that respect. Uh, workouts are beginning. There's a good piece in the Wall Street Journal today on, on uh, condominium workouts. Um, this is going to trickle. In, you, yeah. saw, you saw what happened in London when, when the London luxury market peaked. Um, these things are, are effectively indicia of cheap money yeah. having flowed into enormous amounts yeah. of construction. Dan, uh, Francine commutes from Cornwall. Uh, <laughs> the last chapter of your book, In Pursuit of Pragmatism. Where's the pragmatism forward? Well, to a certain extent, right, the the, the, the Trump revolt uh, was uh, sort of a proxy for, you know, torches in, 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 in the street, not to talk about what happened no, in Charlottesville. Agreed. But, right, but uh, you know, people people really getting out there and, and, and getting angry. They expressed yeah. themselves, I think, unwisely in the, uh, the way they did in the ballot box, but – at the end of the day, uh, the, the the key yeah. the key issue is to is to service yeah. these very disgruntled people. We wait for round two. Dan Alpert with one of the classics of the last ten years: the age of oversupply with Westwood Capital. The the, the my message screen has been a fire. With GDP analysis, we're honored to bring you in her working day, Ellen Zentner of Morgan Stanley. Ellen, you have been exceptionally prescient on a quieter economy. Is today a sea change or is it a nuance of upgrade of GDP? Uh, That's a good one, Tom. Uh, I don't get the sense that it's a sea change, but I think that it's been some time uh, that we haven't really been focused on just what's going on on the private investment side of the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so w- what we did with today's data was, if you look under the hood at just, you know, the fact that, that not only was uh, consumer spending and uh, business investment the two sources of upside uh, revision and biggest contributors to GDP in this, re- in this report, uh, they have been the source of upside revision all year. Um, and so if you look at just the, the private final domestic demand, right, the right. economist's fancy way of saying, let's take exports, let's take inventories yeah. out of it, and just look at what's going on domestically, it's been tracking on average over the past four quarters about 2.9%. So, you know, oftentimes that, that's what right. gets lost in the fray, that it's a pretty robust domestic economy. Eleanor, Carl Riccadonna mentions the end of the corporate profits recession. That's dear to the ideas of Megden Desai at the London School of Economics. Can you say the corporate profit recession is over, and does that fold into boosted productivity, which makes Cherry Ellen's job easier? Yeah, and if only that were her job for the the next four years, we should all be so lucky. Uh, you know, I would say that that uh, that I would concur, and and uh, Mike Wilson, our chief U.S. equity strategist, certainly sees that uh, the profits recession. Uh, is over. I mean, one thing that we've seen in the data is that labor costs, which is this typical later in the cycle, labor costs have risen to a point that you start to incentivize capex over labor, and that's when 
corporates in the U.S. turn back to investing, growing their bottom line, and that's when you can get the product into, uh, uh, increase in productivity. And some of that is just simply cyclical, where we are in the cycle. And we do see that that's underway. And absolutely, it would make uh, the chair's job uh, uh, easier if they want to continue along with gradual rate hikes. Uh, because rising productivity also means you can get a lift in wage growth without pressuring margins and pressuring profits, but raising the standards of living of, uh, of people in your economy. But Ellen, given what we've seen today, is it necessary, is it needed for the Fed to see inflation moving higher, to have the confidence that it will, you know, in the end move higher, or is this enough? Yeah, so that's um, that's the question of the day, right? Inflation is the only place where they are missing on their forecast. Growth is above potential and around their forecast. The unemployment rate is below where they think full employment is. Financial conditions are easy. All of that, uh, for monetary policy theory, all of that is a powerful stew that, that would tell you surely inflationary pressures will build sometime over the outlook. Uh, and so they remain confident just as they mark to market their, or mark downward their inflation forecast every single month and another week of print comes out, you'll see that in their forecast beyond this year, they, they don't budge. They just still have full faith and confidence that we get to that 2% inflation goal. So I think right now the bar is low enough for a December hike that I do think if we just simply get a pickup off the bottom, and I don't think we've seen the worst yet for inflation this year, but if we just see a pickup off the bottom as we go into that December meeting, I think that will be enough for them. But I think it's going to become increasingly difficult for them to, to fight for additional rate hikes unless inflation really does cooperate next year. So, Ellen, how difficult or how important is going to be that wage growth on Friday? So, uh, Friday's report, we expect another tick up in wage growth to 2.6%. It's been a, a pretty sluggish but slow climb upward. Uh, you know, I think that, uh, I hate to say it, but I think that Hurricane Harvey, because we know it's not going to have a bearing on this employment report, but will start to have a bearing on the data by the next employment mm -hmm. report. I think that that will turn eyes away from this employment yeah. report because it's like, oh, yeah, but that was before the disaster. Ellen Zentner, thank you for joining us on Bloomberg Surveillance this morning. Ms. Zentner is with uh, Morgan Stanley, and they're out with a more enthusiastic uh, view here uh, forward. And, of course, all that tying into Fed coverage. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.